Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello, and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Earl Brian, and with me today is Mr. Andrew Bryan. Andrew, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely my pleasure. Good to meet you, Earl. Good to meet you as well. And listeners, uh, what I want you to know about Andrew Bryant is he's the founder of Self Leadership International and the world's leading expert on self-leadership. He has written two books on the topic, Self-Leadership, How to Become a More Successful, Efficient, and Effective Leader from the Inside Out, uh, and Self-Leadership, 12 Powerful Mindsets and Methods to Win in Life and Business. Now, the book we're going to talk about here, adding on to those two, is going to be the new leadership playbook, Being Human Whilst Delivering Accelerated Results. He's also contributed to many blogs, books, and articles on self-leadership and leadership in general. He's coached hundreds of leaders and leadership teams to become the best version of themselves and to scale their companies. He has international experience with clients from Asia, Australia, the United States, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Not only has he worked across geographical locations and cultures, but also transformed and developed leaders across industries, including the airline industry, software and hardware companies, pharmaceutical manufacturers, professional services, bank, professional services, banking, finance, manufacturing, hospitality, and travel. And folks, you know, I know I've got a lot of folks here across the globe, across multiple disciplines. So I just wanted to read that kind of full immersive bio there of Andrew, because the information we're going to talk about here in this show, I have no doubt will apply to you and your organization. But with that depth of knowledge, that that depth of uh, experience, Andrew, I'm really curious to hear how you answer that very first question I start off all my guests. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? Well, for me, it means self-leadership because we can only be responsible for ourselves. Um, I'm responsible for my thoughts, my feelings, my words, my actions. And I assume, Earl, that you're responsible for your thoughts, feelings, words, and actions. So we're each responsible for ourselves. But as leaders, what we do is we, we inspire and encourage others to take responsibility for themselves within a framework of accountability. So I love the question because when I'm coaching or speaking, I like to create a distinction between responsibility for self and accountability to agreements, contracts, frames, environment. And I'm sure we're going to do a deep dive into that distinction in our conversation today. 
Mm. No, I, I like that. And I really love the the focus on self-leadership because, you know, my listeners have heard me talking about uh, a lot on the past here. I've had a couple of guests uh, talk about Stoic philosophy, but I hear a lot of Stoic philosophy tenets in your answer to that question. So how big of a role has Stoic philosophy kind of played in your self-leadership uh, ideas? Um, well, I was triggered by you know, originally man's search for meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl, who talked about the last of all human freedoms is the freedom to choose our own attitude, which in itself is Stoic. And I have researched and read the, the Stoic philosophers, and I love the concept that Stoicism is about facing the worst of reality um, and accepting that, and at the same time not losing the the faith in ourselves that we can prevail, which from a self-leadership perspective is self-efficacy, the, the self-belief that we can overcome. So I think the two are um, completely entwined, and I guess what I've been writing about over the last nearly 20 years on self-leadership could be called Stoic philosophy. And whether I was conscious or unconscious of those impacts, they're certainly there. Yeah, it's it's just a strong concept. I mean, and, and uh, you know, there's so many examples of how Stoicism has really, uh, really helped folks. I mean, um, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to uh, Colonel Lee Ellis, who was a POW during Vietnam uh, under uh, Admiral Stockdale and uh, how stoicism worked out there. And that was just such, such a great, but, um, uh, you know, as we mentioned, we're here to talk about your, your book, the, the new leadership playbook. Now, first of all, I love it whenever I come across somebody who has, uh, had an idea, uh, that I've had, but they've actually executed it. So I like this idea of making leadership a, a playbook because, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, there are plays that you can run in leadership and be effective, right? Absolutely. And you know, I chose Playbook because this book actually was commissioned by one of my Silicon Valley clients who wanted these plays for managers to run. And as I did the research with them around what was, what was the thing that the leaders were missing, and it was very practical. It was a series of behaviors. In fact, you know, most times leadership was a conversation. And so, uh, and I think you, you, you would agree with me on this. Leadership is a conversation, whether it's a one-to-one -one conversation or a one-to-many conversations. And so in the new leadership playbook, there are 12 plays. And each of those plays fundamentally is a conversation that you will need to run at various points in your leadership, you know, starting with why and, and then feedback conversations, critical conversations, career conversations, coaching conversations. And many, many leadership books are, are written at 40,000 feet. A conversation or a play is on the field. It's very practical. Yeah. No, and that last piece there you just said is is something that that uh, one of the reasons why I really enjoyed uh, this book. And listeners, you've heard me talk about this uh, a lot of times. You know, you you get a Maxwell book or, or one of those, and it's it's written kind of from a very academic kind of PhD type level. And if you don't have the foundation to be able to put those things into practice, you're going into a whole new slew of pitfalls in your leadership journey. But what Andrew does in this book is, and I'm a huge fan of, is, is you do, you simplify the process for those folks who may not necessarily have that foundation and you kind of walk them through uh, step by step in, in these plays. 
And I also like the fact that you you start with uh, why, and you know a lot of folks associate that with Simon Sinek, and he's made a lot of money off of that concept. But I like going back to uh, talking about philosophers, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, when he says, uh, "He he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how." And I think for me that really highlights the the real power of why is it gives us a way to to function and move forward in our organizations. So it's, uh, you know, I'm kind of curious, like, why did you start with why? Well, yes, Simon Sinek has done a wonderful piece of branding around owning that concept. But uh, uh, I was, I and many others were talking about that way before Simon's TED Talk. Right. Um, so kudos to him. Um, but it's not a new idea, right? As, as you, you, know, you quote Nietzsche um, and, you, you could, you know, I, I, you could talk about uh, man's search for meaning. Human beings are meaning-making machines. And, you know, whilst we, there's always a lot of talk about remuneration, what is our package, but we, we do things because they're important to us, because we, we feel that they're significant. We, we want to be, feel like we're part of something, moving something forwards. Um, now, as we're recording this podcast and I don't know whether this is going to date it a little bit too much but you know you've got Elon Musk taking over Twitter and a huge uproar about you know a large number of people being fired and a large number of people leaving and you could look at this from a number of perspectives you could look at it from an you know is is Elon as a successful businessman you know cutting out the dead word and and peeling back Twitter to uh to make it an efficient organization um but he's not. He's, he didn't start it. So people didn't join Twitter to follow Elon. Other people might have followed him at Tesla or PayPal, but they're not like people who joined Microsoft when when Bill Gates was trying to put a computer on every desk in every office in the world, or even um, you know Apple when when Jobs was you know attempting to create tools to make humans more effective, right? People bought into those things. They were building them. And, and I think everybody wants to have a sense of purpose. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that is a hundred percent an essential key. I mean, purpose is, is so powerful. And, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about this, uh, you know, in the, in, with the veteran suicide epidemic, that, that lack of purpose or like a feeling of purpose, uh, is a big driver behind behind that, and, and I think that number uh, here in the U.S. the 22 veterans a day committing suicide mainly due to a lack of feeling of purpose should tell you everything you need to know about why purpose is so powerful. It can move you forward, and a lack of it can really literally make you feel like your life has no meaning. Um, Absolutely. Now, so, so go ahead. I, I'm sorry to jump in there, but yeah, I mean, I know I ended that with the word purpose and we started with the question why, and I'm sure your listeners are picking up with the fact that those two become interchangeable. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think we should, in my book, as you know, I define leadership. I mean, th there are as many definitions of leadership as people have tried to write about the topic. Um, but I use leadership is the process of influencing others in a manner that enhances their contribution to the realization of group goals. Now, it's it's a clunky definition, but it I love it that it has leadership is a process. It's not a fixed, it's not a noun, it's a verb. And it's about influence. And when you influence people, influence for me is about getting a willing yes. 
as compared with manipulation or force, which is getting an unwilling yes. I mean, you can put a gun to somebody's head and they will comply. Um, you can nag and cajole people, which I, I call persuading, you know, oh, come to my party on Friday, come to my party on Friday, um, or volunteer for the, for the church cookout, volunteer for the, you know, that's, you know, that's persuasion. But influence is when people want to say yes. And if you as a, as a leader start with why and people get buying to that, they're saying, yes, I want to contribute my, my heart, soul, and my hours to this project because I feel it's important. And so leadership is influence. You mentioned Maxwell, but but Maxwell was always talking about leadership is influence. Yes. No, 100%. And, and I love that. Again, you know, and, and listeners, um, there are 12 plays in the playbook. Uh, obviously, we're not going to talk about them all here. You need to go buy the book because I think it is a valuable, um, you know, I, I talk on here and I think I'm up to maybe six or seven books out of the uh, 230 some interviews I've done that I, I refer to as quick reference books that you want on your desk, not on your bookshelf, on your desk so you can grab them. I think this falls squarely in that category uh, because of the way these plays are laid out. And I love everything you're just saying there uh, with, with influence. Yes, leadership is influence. Um, but yeah, I want to get to, because I think this is, and, and I don't know if you put it as number two uh, for this reason, but number two play is, is ownership. And I think leadership, influence, and ownership are all kind of uh, intertwined there. So uh, how, how does ownership come into play in the playbooks? Well, this follows on from your, your first question. And in fact, you know, the title of, of your podcast around responsible leadership. So I've divided ownership into responsibility and accountability, right? So a leader should take ownership of the act of leading, and I think they should be responsible for themselves and accountable to the consequences of their leadership. And we could we could go off on a on a quite a tangent on talking about you know leaders that don't bear consequence for their actions. But anyway, moving on, um, I think keeping it in the corporate sphere rather than going off on a on a tangent that could get us into a lot of trouble in <laughs> corporate. Uh, in corporations, you know, we need people to feel like they own the role. I mean, if people are just turning up, punching the clock and have no ownership to the task, the quality of service at all levels will be awful. Uh, I mean, have you ever experienced the, you know, you, you, you have a challenge with and you talk to somebody in a customer service position and they say, it's not my job. And if you've ever had that, you just want to lean over the, the counter and choke them because it is your damn job because you're wearing the badge, you're wearing the uniform, or you're a representative of the company. But at the same time, it's not their fault. If they don't feel that sense of ownership, they've been disempowered by a whole structure of, uh, of systems that has not given them the empowerment. Whereas, you know, if you have the contrary experience, you have a problem, you talk to the customer service agent, whether that's a hotel, an airline, a, a, um, a, the people that are fixing the power in your house, and you say, hey, we got this problem. They go, hey, let me see what I can do to fix that. And you just the tangible difference and put yourself in the, in the position of that person. If they feel no ownership, what is that like? And I've got one story to share. I was in a Starbucks years ago and I, I, I come to the, to the person taking the order and I, I think it was a tall, non-fat latte I asked for. And she said, 
are you having a good day? In this most <laughs> now, clearly she was told to ask the question, but clearly it wasn't her question. So I challenged her and I said, is that your question or is that company policy? At which point her brain froze um, and she, could, she couldn't respond because I'd called her out on the fact she was doing what she'd been trained to do but took no ownership in the question. Now, if you're a leader, do you want those people on the front line of your organization? No. I don't. I don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, I want. I want the people who who are going to do it because they believe in it. And, and what you're you're saying there reminds me of, uh, you know, I'll share this quick story here. Is is uh, I was doing some reading on on Tony Shea with with Zappos, and they always made a distinction with Zappos. Kind of to your point, that Zappos is not a shoe company. Uh, it's not a shoe company with great customer service. It's a great customer service company that sells shoes. And they were talking yep. about a story, kind of to your point there. Uh, this lady, uh, she had ordered uh, a pair of shoes for her husband's funeral. Um, and something had happened with the shipping. And they were going to be there like two days late. And so she calls up Zappos and she tells him what's going on. And not only did the lady, because they were empowered, to your point, not only the customer service representative sent a second pair of shoes overnight priority to make sure that they would get there on, on time. She starts asking, she starts asking the lady questions, you know, how are you doing in your time of loss and all that? And she ended up spending something like four hours on the phone talking to this lady who called with a problem, but she talked to her for like four hours about what she was going through with the loss of her husband. That's amazing customer service. And to your point, one of those gets people a little riled up and makes them not want to be customers. And the other one gets people like bought into the organization as a customer and wants to support them in the long term, right? Yep. So what I've done in the book is you've picked on those first two plays, you know, start with why and then ownership. And, and I could have gone straight to objective setting, which, you know, would naturally fl flow from why. But unless you understand a sense of ownership – you don't want to be setting objectives, right? Which So we're going to go from start with why, ownership, and then setting objectives. Because if people don't feel any ownership to the objectives, they're less likely to, to meet those objectives. So that's why I audited and I explained in the book, I, it seems counterintuitive to go from why to ownership. But in my experience, over you know 25 years of working in the leadership space and coaching and training leaders, there's no sense of ownership. And I mean, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, I had been flown uh, into Singapore by a client. Um, they'd flown me at the front of the plane. Um, I, I was put up in this beautiful hotel and I'm hanging up my suit for, the, for a two-day uh, leadership training the next day. And a little note comes under the door and it says, you know, um, uh, transportation has been arranged for you to the venue tomorrow. And I'm feeling incredibly VIP, right? I mean, this is a long time ago, early in my career. And this was, this was my dream client. Anyway, so I go down to get picked up to go to the training venue and, and it's, it's not a taxi, but it's a minibus and everybody's climbing onto that minibus. And, and I realized these were going to be my participants for a two day leadership training. And they were the country managers from around the world from this organization, from Japan, from Germany, from the United States. 
And I, I, nobody, nobody really noticed me. So I just got on the bus and I sat behind uh, two people. They were the country manager from London and the country manager from Australia. And I was privy to this conversation. And uh, London says to Australia, Oh, do you know why we are here? And Australia says, I don't know. Another stupid training, another stupid consultant. Now, this was uh, massively humbling because I was the stupid leadership consultant, but it was also insightful because these people had no ownership on their leadership training and development. The company had flown people from all around the world to spend two days with me. And what was the cost of that? It was huge. But if people don't have any sense of ownership of their need to develop themselves, you know, it dawned on me that it could be a massive waste of money. So it was great to have that heads up and I was able to address that early in the training. Mm. Yeah, uh, that that is a humbling experience. I've kind of been there myself uh, <laughs> uh, once or twice. And uh, uh, yeah, but, but I mean, you make a valuable point there. Um, and I think it's one that we're going to build on uh, on the next part of our conversations. We're going to take a quick break here and we're going to uh, pay some bills, let some commercials run. And we'll be back on the other side of this conversation, uh, this commercial break with Andrew Bryant. All right, Andrew. So before the commercial break, you were making a very valuable point about training and ownership and how much money uh, can be wasted when you don't build that sense of ownership, that sense of community, that sense of uh, importance of self-development. And, and one of the reasons I want to kind of pause there and, and really kind of focus on this is because I agree with you, right? My, my background uh, with leadership, leadership development uh, across, you know, uh, military service, federal civilian service, private sector, I've seen that scenario play out. I've, I've been that person in the story you shared, and I've been the person making those comments. You know, we get the kind of very boilerplate, standardized, same death by PowerPoint kind of stuff. Uh, and, and, and we get people kind of numb to leadership development. So how do you, when you're talking to an organization about what you're going to do, uh, how do you break that barrier? You, you mentioned kind of using that as part of that conversation in your story, but how do you break down that barrier and get people to really realize the power, the ownership uh, that they have in their personal development? Well, follow the money. Um, <clears throat> that's always been, you know, if you talk about influence, um, you know, people always say, well, how much does leadership development cost? Well, how much does the lack of leadership development cost, right? Um, because, you know, what if you train people in leadership and they leave, but worse is what if you <laughs> don't train them and they stay, right? So that's an old chestnut, that one. But here's the thing. Right now in the, you know, post-pandemic, we have the great resignation. We have a lot of talent saying, you know, this is too hard. I'm moving out. We have old style managers, leaders saying, you have to come back to the office. Not let's examine, do you need to come back to the office? You know, let's have a look at your working environment. We, they're just dictating didactically saying, you will come back to the office. And that is creating a massive um, resentment because people had two years of practicing ownership. They had to work out how to, to operate from home. They had to work out how to juggle the kids, the pets, how to find a quiet spot to have a, a podcast conversation like we're having or a, you know, a, a Zoom or a Slack conversation. 
they had to work it out and they got to work out when they were most productive. Um, you know, and it was it was a great equalizer. Women who had young babies were able to, you know, nurse the baby and then when they had a quiet time, do the work rather than be sitting in a cubicle with a manager overlooking them. So what's it costing by not starting with why, with not getting ownership, not setting clear objectives, not giving good feedback? Well, it's costing you in terms of retention. It's costing you in terms of hiring. I mean, you know, one good employee leaves and you know, that's $250,000 that you've been paying them potentially. If you're going to rehire them, it's going to cost you 30% of that. If it's a C-level executive leading, you know, multiply that by four, six to 10. And so there is a massive cost of not having the right conversation. So what this book is, is about 12 plays, each of which is a conversation. Leadership is a conversation that leads to right behaviors. Now, we all know we've all had a bad conversation that's cost us. I mean, it might have cost you, you know, one conversation could have cost you a divorce. One conversation could have cost you uh, your job. One conversation could have cost you a contract. So having the right conversations at the right time, the right way is incredibly important in terms of saving you money and therefore making you money. Mm. No, again, uh, I, I've been saying that a lot. And, and when we were doing our pre-show workup, I told you I probably would because we, we say a lot of the same things and, and come at this from a lot of the same angles. And I love that leadership is is conversations. And, you know, my listeners are probably chanting it right now because they know what I'm getting ready to say. I always say leadership is just another relationship, right? Everything that it takes to make a personal relationship work is what it takes to make a leadership follow a relationship work. And that includes communication and all the things that you just mentioned and, and all of these plays. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of how you've laid this thing out. And again, I want to encourage folks to uh, pick up a copy of, of the new leadership playbook by Andrew Bryant. Um, I kind of want to jump ahead just a little bit here because, uh, you know, those plays, again, I love them. They're, they're a big part of the book, but I love the leadership principles that you've laid out here. And uh, in, in particular, I love disagree and commit because I, I don't know how it is over across the pond in Portugal where you're at. Um, but here in the U.S., we've come to this thing where disagreement just makes you a terrible person. So why do you believe disagree and commit is a leadership principle? Well, I think what we need to do is, is people need to have a voice. And for people to have a voice, they have to have, um, well, either some people have a voice and you, you can't shut them up, but, but often you have to create psychological safety for people to have a voice, right? Now, you know, if you were a front seat passenger in a car and you looked over at the driver and their eyes were slowly closing and you noticed that the car was veering into oncoming traffic, would you say something? Now, knowing you, Earl, I know you would, right? You, you'd speak up right. because you've got skin in the game. And yet we know that people go to meetings unprepared, all right? Uh, an idea is, is put forward and they don't necessarily agree with it, but they don't say anything. And then so the best idea is not adopted. And there are cultural influences on this. There's personality influences on this. I mean, the introverts say that, you know, they find it more uncomfortable to speak up in public, uh, working in Asia for 17 years. The power differential between employee and manager is greater, and so they find it more difficult to speak up with consent. But unless we as leaders are encouraging people 
to to surface their ideas, we are going to miss out. And there's a concept known as hippo, highest paid officer. And if the highest paid officer, you know, speaks, nobody else is going to say anything because why would you want to disagree with the boss? The Japanese have got a nice idea. They let the lowest paid officer speak first and the highest paid officer speaks last. And that way you get to hear the ideas bubble up. And sometimes, right, the best idea could come from the most junior person. They might say, well, why do we do it this way? And everybody's ready to jump on. We've always done it that way. That's our culture. And then suddenly it dawns, you know what? Why are we doing this way? It's out of date. We don't need to do it this way. So creating as a leader a culture where people can disagree is important. However, at some point, you've got to move on. You've got to make a decision. Everybody's got to get on the team and move forwards. So um, uh, Patrick Lencioni really covered this in his Five Dysfunctions of a Team very well. You know, once you've had the conflict, had a healthy conflict, you need to make sure everybody's on board with the final decision and everybody backs it because you can't have people going back into the workforce saying, hey, I was in the leadership meeting. This is what we decided. I don't agree with it, but we're going to do it anyway. That would create a, a massive amount of discontent. It's like, nope, we were in, we argued it, the best idea won. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. No, and again, I, I love it. I love that because it's uh, uh, I've, I've, people are shocked. You know, one of my goals of this podcast is to obviously expose people to great leaders and, and great responsible leadership principles, but also uh, at every opportunity I get to kind of debunk the the Hollywood style of military leadership, you know, the screaming, snarling, spitting, barking orders and everybody jumping uh, too. But this concept is center to uh, great leadership in the military. We, we encourage people to speak out when there's a, a, a flaw in the system. And if you don't, you're responsible for that failure just as much as anybody else, because you saw something and you didn't say something you didn't at least put forth the idea. Maybe you get shot down, right? Maybe the, the the senior officer does shoot down your idea. You are expected to commit to it, but at least you can sit there and say with a clear conscience that you were part of the conversation. You tried to come up with a better outcome. And your goal is to make sure that it succeeds. No matter how much you think it's going to fail, to try to make sure it succeeds, not as you pointed out so eloquently undermine it by saying, you know, Hey guys, I don't believe in this. This is what I would have done, but this is what we're going to do. Cause the, the old man said, so that yeah. just kills all, it kills everything, right? As soon as you make that statement, you just killed every chance of that succeeding. Oh, exactly. And I, I have a, I have a concrete example of that. And you, you mentioned the military. I used to work with DSO national laboratories. Um, DSO stands for Defense Service Organization, and they built the weapon systems for the Singapore Armed Forces. And the CEO of that company uh, used to have this great mantra, nobody has a monopoly on a good idea. And part of the mission statement of that organization, I mean, Singapore is a small little country. You know, you've got Indonesia to the south, Malaysia to the north. And they, you know, they started in 1965 with very, almost no resources and have become a world power. And, you know, nobody's messed with Singapore because they have cutting edge military technology. And they have cutting edge radar, cutting edge drones. They have cutting edge fighters, um, which might surprise people. You know, uh, I know the you're in America, which has the largest military budget on the planet. But Singapore does it really smart. And this 
uh, DSO National Laboratories came up with everything from marching boots for the Singapore soldier to, uh, you know, anthrax defense, et cetera, et cetera. I can't say too much because otherwise I'll be breaching my NDA. But right. what's so amazing is that they realized that they had engineers and, and, and you know, all types of engineers, chemical, mechanical, electrical, who'd been there for 27 years. And they had new graduates who'd been there for two years, but they were losing out on people who were staying, you know, five, seven years they would leave. So they had this gap. They had people that had been there two to three years and they had people that had been there 27 years. And the CEO goes, what the hell's missing in the middle here? And it was because these older guys were not allowing the younger guys to disagree and commit, to come up with new ideas. They're going, oh, well, I've been here 27 years. What do you know? And he said, we're changing that culture. You know, even if somebody's just straight out of university, comes into a lab and has an idea, that idea must be um, floated to the surface because that could be the idea that saves our, nas- our nation, say, you know, that is key to our national security. And uh, it was it was in- it was incredible to be part of a of a cultural change to make it okay for for junior engineers to speak up. Yeah. No, and that's so smart and kind of tying a lot of our conversation already back together. You mentioned the the great resignation earlier. It's great that, that they had that insight because this is my stance on it. You know, again, um, globally, there's a lot of different excuses. But here in the U.S., people keep saying, oh, well, why would people want to work? They've been getting free money. They've been doing this, blah, blah, blah. Um, nobody got, you know, enough free money to replace a pharmacist's salary. Nobody got enough free money to replace a computer programmer's salary. That That's not it. What I try to get people to realize is what you just said, right? When, when people are quitting, the, the, the reason people are quitting organizations right now in record droves is the pandemic exposed them to more opportunities. They had a better work environment during that time frame. They realized they didn't need to go back into a bad work environment where they weren't valued. And so what they're telling you right now is your culture has something wrong with it, why it's not retaining talent. And you're missing out on that if you keep doing the same things you're doing and keep watching people walk out the door. So kudos to them for realizing that's what was going on and and making that cultural shift. So they, I'm assuming, started retaining talent after that, right? Oh, absolutely. And 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 to the point that, you know, their their mission statement was to create technological surprises that strengthen the national security of, of Singapore. That's I'm not quoting that correctly. It's been a few years since I worked with them. But I use that frame. Every time I said, look, if you are shutting people down, you are shutting down the technological, potential technological surprise. Therefore, you are a security risk to the nation of Singapore. And they're very proud people. And um, and they were like, hang on, that's a bit of a stretch. And I'm like, no, it's not. If everything we do, what we do in the small things, we do in the big things, right? And so it was part of a cultural shift and it was great to see. So absolutely. I, I think and, and there's a lot of talk about, I mean, there've been a lot of overpaid employees and a lot of people have used the, um, the, you know, the, the financial crisis to cut down staff levels. But I remember the global financial crisis uh, back in, what was it, 2008, nine, right. And, you know, a lot of organizations laid people off left, right and center. And it didn't last that long, a couple of years. And then they were hiring the same people back at double, triple the salaries. So <laughs> I think you've you got to come in and ask, you know, who are the people I want to retain and who the, you know, if I'm going to have to uh, par back the software industry right now is laying off people left, right and center. 
Uh, and, you know, I, I spoke about Elon Musk earlier. And uh, as I said, it's you know, a lot of my CEO clients, you know, uh, absolutely love Elon. But I'm like, I know that you've, you've got to cut back on your cost base. But how do you know who's leaving and who's staying? You came in, you didn't spend time to work out who's good and who's not. And, and then you just, you know, you, you might be retaining the terrible talent and losing the best of the talent, and then you won't be competitive anymore. Now, whether they, we should just pick on one company, but that is across the board. You know, who, who's, who's, the, who's your best? Who do you need to keep? And giving them a sense of why and a sense of ownership in the future of the company is, you know, is, a, is as important as their pay package. It's if not more important. So having that conversation, what is it you like about working here? What is it you don't like about working here? What would you change if you could? And then listening to those answers and then doing something about it. Yeah. No, I like that. And, and, and you know, kind of give us a little bit of, of uh, diversity here. There's a kind of a legend, if you will, of, of uh, uh, Bill Gates uh, in the early 2000s of uh, the way I heard the story was uh, he was complaining there was a, a programmer working on an important project and he noticed that this guy was leaving like every day, like at noon. And he was complaining because, you know, this was an important project. Does he understand the gravity of the situation? I want him to start staying here until 4 p.m. or whatever it is. And luckily that person's supervisor showed Bill, said, look, here's his login, logout sheet. This, this guy's put in more time than anybody. He just comes in at midnight and works midnight to 9, 10 o'clock in the morning instead of showing up at 8 o'clock and working. And so, you know, to, to the point, Bill had to make an assessment like, oh, this guy is working very hard. I need to ha be culturally aware of that and, and realize that this is just what works best for this person. Let them have the freedom. They're crushing the, the project. I don't care what time they leave as long as they get it done. And I think that's a lot of what we're struggling with in our organizations right now is nine to five in the office isn't the only way to operate anymore. Now, it may still be the sum for, for physical jobs where you have to be there, like assembly lines and things like that. But that freedom piece is what a lot of people are really wanting in the jobs right now, right? Oh, I, I mean, it's a huge drive. And there, there are so many ways of, of slicing this cake around this. But I think a lot of the people who have been threatened are those people who need that sense of control and, and visibility, right? So if I have all my soldiers sitting in their cubicles and I can lean over the cubicle, um, then then, you know, I've got a sense of power. If I can call a meeting and have all hands on deck immediately, then I have a sense of power. Well, you know, th there's power and there's efficiency and effectiveness, right? So the subtitle of the new leadership playbook is being human whilst successfully delivering accelerated results. Now, although the book is all in American English, um, I got it published out of Australia. And so whilst got through the, uh, got through the editors, but some of my American friends go, what's this whilst word? And I said, I'll just replace it with while. So I, I, I missed that Americans don't use whilst, but anyway, so being human and delivering results because you've got to do both. I mean, let's face right. it. If you don't deliver your objectives, your tenure is limited, but if you burn your people out or they leave, you won't be able to deliver your objectives and therefore your tenure will be limited. So we need a new agility. We need a new flexibility and we need to think about being human. And, and it's not about 
keeping people in industrial um, assembly lines like the 1900s. It is how do I my people work best and getting used to new technologies. We had two years of Slack and Zoom, et cetera. I know we've all got a bit of Zoom burnout, but there are, why not get everybody together and at the end of the book, I talk about the future of work, you know, why not have specific offsites where everybody that's related to the project comes together and it's properly facilitated? Why not create workspaces where people can come together at specific times when they need to? And something I said even before the pandemic, and I'm sure you agree with me, honey, is have an intentionality about why the bleep are we meeting? Is this a meeting for an update? Is this an, a meeting for information sharing? Or is this a meeting for decision? Who needs to be at the meeting? And are they prepped before they come to the meeting? I mean, if we covered those things even before the pandemic, efficiency would have gone through the roof. Now we have to be much clearer. Why do we need to get people together? And what do we want to achieve? When we do that, when we do come together, then it's going to be a celebration of creativity and innovation and productivity instead of feeling like we've all been herded into the barn ready for shearing. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. And and kind of to, to your point on, on that idea about uh, changing the way we work, uh, I was interviewing a gentleman several episodes back, and I think he mentioned working with, uh, I don't want to say it was Salesforce. Uh, but they're doing just that. They have sold their or are in the process of selling their relatively brand new multi-million dollar office complex uh, because like something like 90% of their staff is working remote right now and they want to work towards 100%. But they're taking the money from the sale and they're investing in uh, what is essentially, uh, what is the term that they said they were using? Essentially, it's an events resort kind of thing where they can bring people in uh, for meetings when they need them and build it to meet their specific needs because the office space is in, in their industry is pretty much dead. But their solution is what you were just uh, talked about, focusing more on when we need to meet in person, what is that experience like so we can get the most out of it and not be you know side saddled with distractions and, and unnecessary meetings. So I think that's just a really kind of brilliant approach is to, to, to change the way we work is to look at, at the events process. So I like that insight there. Um, you know, Andrew, we've been chatting here for goodness, a little, you know, probably approaching 45 minutes or so here at this point. And it has just been a wealth of insight and knowledge. And I really thank you for what you've shared so far. Uh, but I'm just kind of curious, is there anything that we haven't uh, had a chance to touch on that you really want to touch on and leave listeners with before we close out? Yeah, I, I will because I, I, I'm just preparing. Um, uh, I'm about to head off to Stockholm in Sweden this week, and I'm I'm doing a presentation there. Um, as you alluded, you know, I'm I'm a, a globe trotter when it comes to my clients, and it's nice to physically be in front of them again. And what I'm sharing with this audience, I'll share with yours, and that is a a, a diagnostic tool and. Um, anybody's interested, there's a, there's a short webinar on, on my website and it really is, I, I think prescription without diagnosis is malpractice, right? So anybody who studied medicine knows you, you've got to find out where people are at. So when you and I talk on a podcast about leadership, we've got to go, where is the individual, where is the organization on their leadership journey? So, I mean, obviously we want accelerated results. 
So if, if we consider a speedometer, right, slow versus fast, and I, I live in Portugal where they love to drive fast, right? So assuming that fast is good, what is slow when it comes to leadership? And I talk about being framed, you know, stuck in a, a frame of black and white thinking, right, wrong, this is the way we do things. And we've addressed a number of those. Now, we're all framed from birth. We're framed by our name, our nationality, our ethnicity, possibly a religion and what football team we follow, particularly during the World Cup right now. Oh, I'm talking soccer, not uh, American football, but the World <laughs> Cup's on for those that don't know. Um, so we, we're framed in terms of our perspectives and framing limits the acceleration in terms of our, our leadership ability. So a lot of what you and I have talked about is, is stepping back from the frame and going, okay, I know I was conditioned to see things this way, but is there a better way of doing it? Now, once we can start doing that, we can start accelerating, but we tend to fall into another trap and that is of firefighting running into burning buildings and so many of the leadership and management events that I've, I've either facilitated or spoken at, everybody's busy. Everybody's got a million emails. They're running backwards and forwards in and out of the burning building, never having time to step back and strategize and go, well, hang on a moment. Are we building the, are we putting the houses too close together? Uh, do we have enough fire stations? Uh, you know, do we, what do we need to do? And if we can't get out of firefighting mode, we cannot accelerate our leadership. Now, how do, how do you get out of firefighting mode? Well, I've been talking about the solution as of you, and that is self-leadership. And self-leadership is a function of self-awareness, self-regulation or emotional intelligence, and self-learning, the ability to update your, your mental models. Once we have self-leadership, then we can, we can do a check. Are we in firefighting mode? Are we framed? And make sure we keep accelerating towards what we want, which is accelerated results. And in the book, I give a leadership framework for accelerated results, which is clear expectations times mindset and motivation times right behaviors equals accelerated results. And so with, with, with clear expectations, we as leaders have to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, you know, did I give the right expectations? Did I start with why? Did I encourage ownership? Did I give the right feedback? around mindset and motivation. Are my people trained enough? Are they the right people? Do they have the buy-in? And right behaviors, what are the behaviors in terms of the conversations we have, the actions we take that I'm doing, my people are doing, are they leading to the results that we want in our organization? And when we do that, when we have that framework, we'll move the ball down the field as it were. We'll score the try, the goal, uh, the touchdown, whatever sport or code you follow, that's the play we need. Mm. That is, that is solid gold, solid gold. And, and again, listeners, uh, take that, you know, take that piece of advice right there. If you take nothing else from this conversation, Andrew just sign, uh, summed everything up very well, very eloquently. Uh, the people in Stockholm are, are in for a treat if that's just the tip of the iceberg of what you're going to talk about there. Um, yeah. But Andrew, you know, uh, again, I, I want to encourage people to go grab a copy of the new leadership playbook, being human while successfully delivering accelerated results. And I love the fact that you got whilst through there because uh, <laughs> I, I love I love words we don't use anymore as much as we should. And I think that is a fantastic word. Um, but, you know, people want to find out more about you, what you're doing. Uh, I know you've got a really great YouTube channel out there. Uh, what is a good place for people to find out more about Andrew Bryant? 
The simplest place to go is selfleadership.com. On that homepage, there are links to pretty much everything I do, including the book. If you want to go to a dedicated uh, page on the book, it is the new leadership playbook. I spend a lot of time these days on LinkedIn as uh, as a place that I have a lot of conversations with people. So, you know, you'll find a lot of my content on LinkedIn. And you've already mentioned uh, YouTube and now we have YouTube handles. So it's um, at Andrew Bryant is my YouTube handle. So uh, go check out lots of free resources. But of course, if one of your listeners is uh, interested in uh in having me do some work with them, please reach out. Uh, you know, I've got kids at university and uh, I love what I do. So between the need, the want, and the passion, uh, we could, uh, you know, we could make beautiful music. Love it. Love it. And folks, I highly uh, encourage you. Those links are going to be in the show notes. So you can just click and, and get right where you need to be. Um, but I, again, I highly encourage you to check out all these resources. Uh, Andrew's uh, YouTube channel is just fantastic. There's a lot of great information there. Uh, a lot of great information in this book and his previous books. Uh, but again, I just want to give this my, my full endorsement that this should be, uh, again, on your desk within reach, not on a bookshelf uh, collecting dusk. Uh, collecting dust. Um, and Andrew, again, uh, I want to say thank you very much for your time and being with us and, and missing out on uh, your World Cup game. Hopefully uh, there's still enough match <laughs> left for you to to check that out. But, you know, thank you for being an outstanding uh, guest, sharing your knowledge, sharing your information, sharing your wealth of experiences uh, with me and my listeners on this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. It's my pleasure, Alan. Thank you for, for, for your testimonial and recommendation. I appreciate it. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid.